Chapter Twenty Five, Section One of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Seven. The Accumulation of Capital. Chapter 25. The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation. Section 1. The Increased Demand for Labor Power that Accompanies Accumulation. The Composition of Capital Remaining the Same. In this chapter we consider the influence of the growth of capital on the lot of the laboring class. The most important factor in this inquiry is the composition of capital, and the changes it undergoes in the course of the process of accumulation. The composition of capital is to be understood in a twofold sense. On the side of value, it is determined by the proportion in which it is divided into constant capital, or value of the means of production, and variable capital, or value of labor power, the sum total of wages. On the side of material, as it functions in the process of production, all capital is divided into means of production and living labor power. This latter composition is determined by the relation between the mass of the means of production employed, on the one hand, and the mass of labor necessary for their employment, on the other. I call the former the value composition, the latter the technical composition of capital. Between the two there is a strict correlation. To express this, I call the value composition of capital, in so far as it is determined by its technical composition, and mirrors the changes of the latter, the organic composition of capital. Whenever I refer to the composition of capital, without further qualification, its organic composition is always understood. The many individual capitals invested in a particular branch of production have, one with another, more or less different compositions. The average of their individual compositions gives us the composition of the total capital in this branch of production. Lastly, the averages of these averages, in all branches of production, gives us the composition of the total social capital of a country, and with this alone are we, in the last resort, concerned in the following investigation. Growth of capital involves growth of its variable constituent, or of the part invested in labor power. A part of the surplus value turned into additional capital must always be retransformed into variable capital, or additional labor fund. If we suppose that, all other circumstances remaining the same, the composition of capital also remains constant, i.e., that a definite mass of means of production constantly needs the same mass of labor-power to set it in motion, then demand for labor and the subsistence fund of the laborers clearly increase in the same proportion as the capital, and the more rapidly, the more rapidly the capital increases. Since the capital produces yearly a surplus value, of which one part is yearly added to the original capital, since this increment itself grows yearly along with the augmentation of the capital already functioning, since lastly, under special stimulus to enrichment, such as the opening of new markets, or of new spheres for the outlay of capital in consequence of newly developed social wants, etc., the scale of accumulation may be suddenly extended, merely by a change in the division of the surplus value, or surplus product, into capital and revenue. The requirements of accumulating capital may exceed the increase of labor power, or of the number of laborers. The demand for laborers may exceed the supply, and therefore wages may rise. 
This must, indeed, ultimately be the case if the conditions supposed above continue. For since in each year more laborers are employed than in its predecessor, sooner or later a point must be reached, at which the requirements of accumulation begin to surpass the customary supply of labor, and therefore a rise of wages takes place. A lamentation on this score was heard in England during the whole of the fifteenth and the first half of the eighteenth centuries. The more or less favorable circumstances in which the wage-working class supports and multiplies itself in no way alter the fundamental character of capitalist production. As simple reproduction constantly reproduces the capital itself, i.e., the relation of capitalists on the one hand and wage-workers on the other, so reproduction on a progressive scale, i.e., accumulation, reproduces the capital relation on a progressive scale. More capitalists or larger capitalists at this pole, more wage-workers at that. The reproduction of a mass of labor-power, which must incessantly reincorporate itself with capital for that capital's self-expansion, which cannot get free from capital, and whose enslavement to capital is only concealed by the variety of individual capitalists to whom it sells itself, this reproduction of labor-power forms, in fact, an essential of the reproduction of capital itself. Accumulation of capital is, therefore, increase of the proletariat. Footnote. Karl Marx. A égalité d'oppression des masses, plus un pays a de prolétaires et plus il est riche. Collins. L'économie politique, source des révolutions et des utopies, prétendues socialistes. Paris, 1857, page 331. Our proletarian is economically none other than the wage-laborer, who produces and increases capital, and is thrown out on the streets, as soon as he is superfluous for the needs of aggrandizement of Monsieur Capital, as Pecure calls this person. The sickly proletarian of the primitive forest is a pretty Rocherian fancy. The primitive forester is owner of the primitive forest, and uses the primitive forest as his property, with the freedom of an orangutan. He is not, therefore, a proletarian. This would only be the case if the primitive forest exploited him instead of being exploited by him. As far as his health is concerned, such a man would bear well comparison, not only with the modern proletarian, but also with the syphilitic and scrofulous upper classes. But, no doubt, Herr Wilhelm Roscher, by primitive forest, means his native heath of Lüneburg. End note. Classical economy grasped this fact so thoroughly that Adam Smith, Ricardo, etc., as mentioned earlier, inaccurately identified accumulation with the consumption, by the productive workers, of all the capitalized part of the surplus product, or with its transformation into additional wage-laborers. As early as 1696, John Bellers says, For, if one had a hundred thousand acres of land, and as many pounds in money, and as many capital, without a laborer, what would the rich man be but a laborer? As the laborers make men rich, so the more laborers there will be, the more rich men, the labor of the poor being the minds of the rich. Footnote. John Bellers, 1st C, page 2. End note. So also Bernard de Mandeville at the beginning of the eighteenth century. It would be easier, where property is well secured, to live without money than without poor, for who would do the work? As they, the poor, ought to be kept from starving, so they should receive nothing worth saving. If here and there one of the lowest class, by uncommon industry, and pinching his belly, lifts himself above the condition he was brought up in, nobody ought to hinder him. 
Nay, it is undeniably the wisest course for every person in the society, and for every private family, to be frugal. But it is in the interest of all rich nations that the greatest part of the poor should be almost never idle, and yet continually spend what they get. Those that get their living by their daily labor have nothing to stir them up to be serviceable but their wants, which it's prudence to relieve, but folly to cure. The only thing, then, that can render the laboring man industrious is a moderate quantity of money, for as too little will, according to his temper is, either disparate or make him desperate, so too much will make him insolent and lazy. From what has been said, it is manifest that in a free nation, where slaves are not allowed of, the surest wealth consists in a multitude of laborers poor, for besides that they are the never-failing nursery of fleets and armies, without them there could be no enjoyment, and no product of any country would be valuable. To make the society, which of course consists of non-workers, happy and people easier under the meanest circumstances, it is requisite that great numbers of them should be ignorant as well as poor. Knowledge both enlarges and multiplies our desires, and the fewer things a man wishes for, the more easily his necessities may be supplied. Footnote. Bernard de Mandeville, The Fable of the Bees, 5th edition, London, 1728. Remarks, pages 212, 213, 328. Temperate living and constant employment is the direct road, for the poor, to rational happiness, by which he most probably means long working days and little means of subsistence, and to riches and strength for the state, viz., for the landlords, capitalists, and their political dignitaries and agents. An Essay on Trade and Commerce, London, 1770, page 54. End note. What Mandeville, an honest, clear-headed man, had not yet seen, is that the mechanism of the process of accumulation itself increases, along with the capital, the mass of laboring poor, i.e., the wage laborers, who turn their labor power into an increasing power of self-expansion of the growing capital, and even by doing so must eternize their dependent relation on their own product, as personified in the capitalists. In reference to this relation of dependence, Sir F. M. Eden, in his The State of the Poor, An History of the Laboring Classes in England, says, The natural produce of our soil is certainly not fully adequate to our subsistence. We can neither be clothed, lodged, nor fed, but in consequence of some previous labor. A portion at least of the society must be indefatigably employed, there are others who, though they neither toil nor spin, can yet command the produce of industry, but who owe their exemption from labor solely to civilization and order. They are peculiarly the creatures of civil institutions, which have recognized that individuals may acquire property by various other means besides the exertion of labor. Persons of independent fortune owe their superior advantages by no means to any superior abilities of their own, but almost entirely to the industry of others. It is not the possession of land, or of money, but the command of labor, which distinguishes the opulent from the laboring part of the community. This scheme approved by Eden would give the people of property sufficient, but by no means too much influence and authority over those who work for them, and it would place such laborers, not in an abject or servile condition, but in such a state of easy and liberal dependence as all who know human nature, and its history, will allow to be necessary for their own comfort." Footnote. Eden should have asked, whose creatures then are the civil institutions? From his standpoint of juridical illusion, he does not regard the law as a product of the material relations of production, 
but conversely the relations of production as products of the law. Lingue overthrew Montesquieu's illusory esprit des lois with one word. L'esprit des lois, c'est la propriété. The spirit of laws is property. End note. Footnote. Eden, Volume 1, Book 1, Chapter 1, Pages 1 and 2, and Preface, Page 20. End note. Sir F. M. Eden, it may be remarked in passing, is the only disciple of Adam Smith during the eighteenth century that produced any work of importance. Footnote. If the reader reminds me of Malthus, whose essay on population appeared in 1798, I remind him that this work, in its first form, is nothing more than a schoolboyish, superficial plagiary of Depoe, Sir James Stewart, Townsend, Franklin, Wallace, etc., and does not contain a single sentence thought out by himself. The great sensation this pamphlet caused was due solely to party interest. The French Revolution had found passionate defenders in the United Kingdom, the principle of population slowly worked out in the eighteenth century, and then, in the midst of a great social crisis, proclaimed with drums and trumpets as the infallible antidote to the teachings of Condorcet, etc., was greeted with jubilance by the English oligarchy as the great destroyer of all hankerings after human development. Malthus, hugely astonished at his success, gave himself to stuffing into his book materials superficially compiled, and adding to it new matter, not discovered but annexed by him. Note, further, although Malthus was a parson of the English state church, he had taken the monastic vow of celibacy, one of the conditions of holding a fellowship in Protestant Cambridge University. Socios collegiorum maritos esse non permittis, sed statum postquam quis uxorum duxerit socius collegiae desinit esse. Reports of Cambridge University Commission, page 172. This circumstance favorably distinguished Malthus from the other Protestant parsons, who have shuffled off the command enjoining celibacy of the priesthood, and have taken be fruitful and multiply, as their special biblical mission, in such a degree that they generally contribute to the increase of population, to a really unbecoming extent, whilst they preach at the same time to the laborers the principle of population. It is characteristic that the economic fall of man, the Adam's apple, the urgent appetite, the checks which tend to blunt the shafts of Cupid, as Parson Townsend waggishly puts it, that this delicate question was and is monopolized by the reverends of Protestant theology, or rather of the Protestant church. With the exception of the Venetian monks, Ortes, an original and clever writer, most of the population theory teachers are Protestant parsons. For instance, Bruckner, Theorie du système animal, Leda, 1767, in which the whole subject of the modern population theory is exhausted, and to which the passing quarrel between Quesnay and his pupil, the elder Mirabeau, furnished ideas on the same topic. Then Parson Wallace, Parson Townsend, Parson Malthus, and his pupil, the arch-parson Thomas Chalmers, to say nothing of lesser reverend scribblers in this line. Originally, political economy was studied by philosophers like Hobbes, Locke, Hume, by businessmen and statesmen like Thomas More, Temple, Sully, De Witt, North, Law, Vanderlint, Cantillon, Franklin, and especially, and with greatest success, by medical men like Petty, Barbon, Mandeville, Quesnay. Even in the middle of the eighteenth century, the Reverend Mr. Tucker, a notable economist of his time, excused himself for meddling with the things of mammon. 
later on, and in truth with this very principle of population, struck the hour of the Protestant parsons. Petty, who regarded the population as the basis of wealth, and was, like Adam Smith, an outspoken foe to parsons, says, as if he had a presentiment of their bungling interference, that religion best flourishes when the priests are most mortified, as was before said of the law, which best flourisheth when lawyers have least to do. He advises the Protestant priests, therefore, if they, once for all, will not follow the Apostle Paul and mortify themselves by celibacy, not to breed more churchmen than the benefices, as they now stand shared out, will receive. That is to say, if there be places for about twelve thousand in England and Wales, it will not be safe to breed up twenty-four thousand ministers, for then the twelve thousand which are unprovided for will seek ways how to get themselves a livelihood, which they cannot do more easily than by persuading the people that the twelve thousand incumbents do poison or starve their souls, and misguide them in their way to heaven. Petty, A Treatise of Taxes and Contributions London, 1667, page 57. Adam Smith's position with the Protestant priesthood of his time is shown by the following. In a letter to A. Smith, L.L.D., on the life, death, and philosophy of his friend, David Hume, by one of the people called Christians, 4th edition, Oxford, 1784, Dr. Horne, Bishop of Norwich, reproves Adam Smith, because in a published letter to Mr. Strahan he involved his friend David Hume, because he told the world how Hume amused himself on his deathbed with Lucian and Whist, and because he even had the impudence to write of Hume, I have always considered him, both in his lifetime and since his death, as approaching as nearly to the idea of a perfectly wise and virtuous man, as perhaps the nature of human frailty will permit. The bishop cries out in a passion, is it right in you, sir, to hold up to our view as perfectly wise and virtuous the character and conduct of one who seems to have been possessed with an incurable antipathy to all that is called religion, and who strained every nerve to explode, suppress, and extirpate the spirit of it among men, that its very name, if he could affect it, might no more be had in remembrance? First C, page 8. But let not the lovers of truth be discouraged. Atheism cannot be of long continuance." page 17. Adam Smith had the atrocious wickedness to propagate atheism through the land, viz. by his theory of moral sentiments. Upon the whole, doctor, your meaning is good, but I think you will not succeed this time. You would persuade us, by the example of David Hume, Esquire, that atheism is the only cordial for low spirits, and the proper antidote against the fear of death. You may smile over Babylon in ruins, and congratulate the hardened Pharaoh on his overthrow in the Red Sea. First C, pages 21 and 22. One orthodox individual, amongst Adam Smith's college friends, writes after his death, Smith's well-placed affection for Hume hindered him from being a Christian. When he met with honest men whom he liked, he would believe almost anything they said. Had he been a friend of the worthy, ingenious Horrocks, he would have believed that the moon sometimes disappeared in a clear sky, without the interposition of a cloud. He approached to republicanism in his political principles. The Bee, by James Anderson, 18 volumes, volume 3, pages 166-165, Edinburgh, 1791-93. Parson Thomas Chalmers has his suspicions as to Adam Smith having invented the category of unproductive laborers, solely for the Protestant parsons, in spite of their blessed work in the vineyard of the Lord. 
End note. Under the conditions of accumulation supposed thus far, which conditions are those most favorable to the laborers, their relation of dependence upon capital takes on a form endurable, or, as Eden says, easy and liberal. Instead of becoming more intensive with the growth of capital, this relation of dependence only becomes more extensive, i.e., the sphere of capital's exploitation and rule merely extends, with its own dimensions and the number of its subjects. A larger part of their own surplus product, always increasing and continually transformed into additional capital, comes back to them in the shape of means of payment, so that they can extend the circle of their enjoyments, can make some additions to their consumption fund of clothes, furniture, etc., and can lay by small reserve funds of money. But just as little as better clothing, food, and treatment, and a larger peculum, do away with the exploitation of the slave, so little do they set aside that of the wage-worker. A rise in the price of labor, as a consequence of accumulation of capital, only means, in fact, that the length and weight of the golden chain the wage-worker has already forged for himself allow of a relaxation of the tension of it. In the controversies on this subject the chief fact has generally been overlooked, viz. the differentia specifica, defining characteristic, of capitalist production. Labor power is sold to-day, not with a view of satisfying, by its service or by its product, the personal needs of the buyer. His aim is augmentation of his capital, production of commodities containing more labor than he pays for, containing, therefore, a portion of value that costs him nothing, and that is nevertheless realized when the commodities are sold. Production of surplus value is the absolute law of this mode of production. Labor power is only saleable so far as it preserves the means of production in their capacity of capital, reproduces its own value as capital, and yields in unpaid labor a source of additional capital. Footnote. The limit, however, to the employment of both the operative and the laborer is the same, namely, the possibility of the employer realizing a profit on the produce of their industry. If the rate of wages is such as to reduce the master's gains below the average profit of capital, he will cease to employ them, or he will only employ them on condition of submission to a reduction of wages. John Wade, page 241, end note. The conditions of its sale, whether more or less favorable to the laborer, include, therefore, the necessity of its constant reselling, and the constantly extended reproduction of all wealth in the shape of capital. Wages, as we have seen, by their very nature, always imply the performance of a certain quantity of unpaid labor on the part of the laborer. Altogether, irrespective of the case of a rise in wages with a falling price of labor, etc., such an increase only means, at best, a quantitative diminution of the unpaid labor that the worker has to supply. This diminution can never reach the point at which it would threaten the system itself. Apart from violent conflicts as to the rate of wages, and Adam Smith has already shown, that in such a conflict, taken on the whole, the master is always master, a rise in the price of labor resulting from accumulation of capital implies the following alternative. Either the price of labor keeps on rising, because its rise does not interfere with the progress of accumulation. In this there is nothing wonderful, for, says Adam Smith, after these profits are diminished, stock may not only continue to increase, but to increase much faster than before. A great stock, though with small profits, generally increases faster than a small stock with great profits. 
In this case it is evident that a diminution in the unpaid labor in no way interferes with the extension of the domain of capital. Or, on the other hand, accumulation slackens in consequence of the rise in the price of labor, because the stimulus of gain is blunted. The rate of accumulation lessens, but with its lessening the primary cause of that lessening vanishes, i.e., the disproportion between capital and exploitable labor power. The mechanism of the process of capitalist production removes the very obstacles that it temporarily creates. The price of labor falls again to a level corresponding with the needs of the stealth expansion of capital, whether the level be below, the same as, or above the one which was normal before the rise of wages took place. We see thus, in the first case, it is not the diminished rate either of the absolute or of the proportional increase in labor power, or laboring population, which causes capital to be in excess, but conversely the excess of capital that makes exploitable labor power insufficient. In the second case, it is not the increased rate either of the absolute or of the proportional increase in labor power, or laboring population, that makes capital insufficient but conversely the relative diminution of capital that causes the exploitable labor power or rather its price to be in excess it is these absolute movements of the accumulation of capital which are reflected as relative movements of the mass of exploitable labor power and therefore seem produced by the latter's own independent movement to put it mathematically the rate of accumulation is the independent not the dependent variable the rate of wages, the dependent, not the independent variable. Thus, when the industrial cycle is in the phase of crisis, a general fall in the price of commodities is expressed as a rise in the value of money, and in the phase of prosperity, a general rise in the price of commodities as a fall in the value of money. The so-called currency school concludes from this that, with high prices too much, with low prices too little money is in circulation. Their ignorance and complete misunderstanding of facts are worthily paralleled by the economists, who interpret the above phenomena of accumulation by saying that there are now too few, now too many, wage-laborers. Footnote. Note by the Institute of Marxism-Leninism to the Russian edition. The manuscript in the first case says little, and in the second case much. The correction has been introduced according to the authorized French translation. End note. Footnote. See, for example, Karl Marx, Zur Kritik der Politischen Economie, page 166, end note. The law of capitalist production that is at the bottom of the pretended natural law of population reduces itself simply to this. The correlation between accumulation of capital and rate of wages is nothing else than the correlation between the unpaid labor transformed into capital and the additional paid labor necessary for the setting in motion of this additional capital. It is therefore in no way a relation between two magnitudes, independent one of the other, on the one hand the magnitude of the capital, on the other the number of the laboring population. It is rather at bottom only the relation between the unpaid and the paid labor of the same laboring population. If the quantity of unpaid labor supplied by the working class and accumulated by the capitalist class increases so rapidly that its conversion into capital requires an extraordinary addition of paid labor, then wages rise, and all other circumstances remaining equal, the unpaid labor diminishes in proportion. But as soon as this diminution touches the point at which the surplus labor that nourishes capital is no longer supplied in normal quantity, a reaction sets in, 
a smaller part of revenue is capitalized, accumulation lags, and the movement of rise in wages receives a check. The rise of wages, therefore, is confined within limits that not only leave intact the foundations of the capitalistic system, but also secure its reproduction on a progressive scale. The law of capitalistic accumulation, metamorphosed by economists into pretended law of nature, in reality merely states that the very nature of accumulation excludes every diminution in the degree of exploitation of labor, and every rise in the price of labor, which could seriously imperil the continual reproduction, on an ever-enlarging scale, of the capitalistic relation. It cannot be otherwise in a mode of production in which the laborer exists to satisfy the needs of self-expansion of existing values, instead of, on the contrary, material wealth existing to satisfy the needs of development on the part of the laborer. As in religion, man is governed by the products of his own brain. So in capitalistic production he is governed by the products of his own hand. Footnote if we now return to our first inquiry wherein it was shown that capital itself is only the result of human labor it seems quite incomprehensible that man can have fallen under the domination of capital his own product can be subordinated to it and as in reality this is beyond dispute the case involuntarily the question arises how has the laborer been able to pass from being master of capital as its creator to being its slave von thunen der isjolert stadt part two section two rostock eighteen sixty three pages five and six it is thunen's merit to have asked this question his answer is simply childish End note. End of chapter twenty five section one